Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's that time of the year where the tournament is finally upon us. College basketball takes center stage. BetOnline is the number one spot for bets, odds, information, and the 2022 college basketball bracket contest. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get started today. Bet online, where the game starts. Oh, yeah, everybody. It's time for the Memes of the Weekend podcast here on the Take It Easy podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network. Welcome in, everybody. It is March 28th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. It is Atlanta Falcons Day, of course, 28-3. We have got a fun show for you today. We're going to talk about something that happened in the NFL world with the Jets, the Jimmy Garoppolo situation. We are going to talk about Nikola Jokic, and uh, we're going to get to all of that stuff and more here on the Memes of the Weekend podcast. It's a way to recap all of the shit that has gone down in the last two days since we have been on the air. It has been two days since we have been on the air. It is good to be back. We begin, of course, with the final four, that thing that happens in March or April in college basketball, all of the cliches that I'm not allowed to say because they are copyrighted. So we need to talk about the final four matchup that is captivating the nation, the one that Two weeks ago on this very fine podcast, I told you exactly what was going to happen. That is, of course, Villanova versus Kansas in the Final Four. I told you that was going to be the matchup. I did not watch a single minute of regular season college basketball outside of the Gonzaga and Duke Black Friday college basketball game. Other than that, did not watch any regular season college basketball, and I could tell you exactly what the Final Four is going to be, because when it comes to brackets, it's just a little bit of a numbers game, people. And the numbers game played in my favor this year by getting two Final Four teams correct out of four, which if you bet high seeds often enough, is probably what you're going to end up getting, somewhere between one to two Final Four teams correct, or like me last year picking Gonzaga to win the national championship, and this year picking Gonzaga to win the national championship. If you're going to bet for money, Always pick higher seeds. I know it's unpopular. Always pick the higher seeds. So, yes, Villanova, Kansas is going to play in the Final Four, and it's going to be the first Final Four game because the primetime Final Four game of 2022 is going to be what one can only imagine will be one of the highest-rated college basketball games of the last five years because saying highest-rated college basketball game ever is a little bit cliche because college basketball used to mean something 30 and 40 years ago when there were only five cable television networks and CBS was paying a lot of money to get March Madness. But Duke is going to play North Carolina. 
And we talked about on Wired Up how the NCAA can sell Goliaths, Davids, a.k.a. Cinderella stories. They can sell trying to take down a powerhouse like Duke was in 2019. They can sell Cinderella teams and they can sell nostalgia. And nostalgia is going to sell in this Duke-North Carolina game if the NCAA puts all of their abilities to market behind this game, shall we say. All of their propaganda, all of their uh, corporate partners or corporate sponsors, as they say, ESPN and CBS and Turner and Bleacher Report, which is associated with Turner, put all of your marketing efforts into that matchup. And do all the nostalgia if you're college basketball. Talk about Coach K. Talk about former coach Roy Williams, even though Roy Williams isn't even there anymore. Let's ignore Hubert Davis, who in his first season at North Carolina is taking them on a Cinderella Final Four run. Ignore all of that. Focus on the fans. Focus on the rivalry. Do all of the cliche nostalgia shit because you can sell this one game, if you so choose, as the end of an era and not just the end of an era the end of the sport as we know it doesn't mean the end of college basketball but if i were a marketing campaigner for this game i would advertise this as the end of college basketball as we know it now i'm going to be a little more honest as a marketer than the ncaa because the ncaa would not want you to believe that this is the end of any kind of era of the NCAA, considering the next era is going to be less popular because people just don't care about college basketball the way they did when there were significantly fewer entertainment options. I have said consistently that sports mean a lot to a lot of people, but they don't matter at all. And if you can't find meaning in sports, your sport does not matter. College basketball is a regional sport that for six days of the year gets to capture national attention. And even in those six days of the year, you're not going to be perfect on all six days. It's really three weekends and usually one of them is going to capture the average sports fan's attention. Maybe one storyline is going to draw people in. Or the people are going to have nothing to do and there's no football and the NBA kind of fades to the background during March Madness and college basketball gets those six days, the first two days of the tournament, the Sweet 16 or Elite Eight days, the Final Four, and the National Championship. You get six of those days to capture everybody's attention when it comes to a random single elimination tournament that, again, you can sell Davids, you can sell Goliaths, and you can sell Nostalgia. And they are selling nostalgia on this one because this is Coach K's last game. Coach K represents an era of college basketball, love or hate, that was significantly more popular on a national level than it is now. When college basketball was a national sport and not a regional sport, we are talking about 1990s into the early 2000s. So these are the Coach K teams with Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley and I forgot uh, Grant Hill. Grant Hill was also on those teams. Uh, Those teams with UNLV and Michigan and Georgetown, which leads into the 2000s of Jay Williams and Carlos Boozer and those Duke teams that end up winning a national championship. Oh, that also leads into J.J. Redick. I almost forgot about J.J. Redick. 
Jay Williams, Carlos Boozer into J.J. Redick. I think they won one national championship during that era, but were consistently in the Final Four. And then it becomes one and done, and one and done, and Coach K being the USA basketball coach, and he's larger than life because across 15 to 20 years, he has staked that reputation of, I am the kingmaker of college basketball. And Coach K goes 40 years and gets the stadium named after him and all of that jazz that works in favor of Coach K. Now he gets one final ride. He does the retirement tour. When last year, literally weeks before Coach K announces his retirement, Roy Williams, who one could argue behind Coach K, is the second most successful coach of this era of college basketball that once captured the national attention. Roy Williams announces that he is going to retire, but he's going to do it effective immediately. And it would have been so perfect if Roy Williams had done this year as the final year and normally the cliche is hubert davis is winning with roy williams players the transfer portal changes that a little bit because players can end up transferring when roy williams retires although roy williams was a somewhat around the program this year it wasn't like he was retiring and fading into non-existence he just wasn't doing the day-to-day coaching stuff for north carolina basketball and roy williams who ends up retiring with, you know, a Cinderella type of team. I'm not going to pretend like North Carolina, who is, you know, other than maybe Kansas or Kentucky, the bluest of blue bloods who I mentioned on Friday or on Saturday were all arguing in a commercial, whether it be Devin Booker and Vince Carter and Christian Leitner and Sue Bird, all arguing in a commercial about who is the bluest of the blue bloods. And blue blood becomes a term that only exists in college basketball because it's programs that wear blue that consistently make it to the national championship. And whoopty freaking do, you've got three Hall of Fame coaches in the Final Four, and you've got Hubert Davis coaching you know a team that was recruited by Roy Williams Hubert Davis didn't add any new recruits through the transfer portal when he took over and now North Carolina is a Cinderella team that makes it to the final four so North Carolina's there and the rivalry is something that can be sold because again Duke North Carolina at the pinnacle of college basketball when you could argue Carolina wins three national championships with Roy Williams across 20 years coach K wins five national championships across 40 years you can argue those are the premier programs in all of college basketball and Kansas is right there and you know oddly enough Villanova kind of took the mantle a little bit with championship in the 80s Jay Wright's won two championships now in recent years but that's more of a different era of college basketball I think the the era we're talking about is from like 1986 until about 2004 or 2006 I guess whenever let's say 1986 to 2009 because that's when North Carolina won that national let's say 2010 because Duke won a national championship in 2010 so let's say 1986 to 2010 when college basketball was doing 20 to 30 million viewers per game during the Final Four and Championship Week, when it had more of a national audience than the regional audience that it has now. And by the way, this is also kicked up by the fact that ESPN bought massive college basketball rights in the 1990s and 2000s as well, because the sport was incredibly cheap to put on TV and had a national audience in part thanks to Coach K and to Roy Williams. 
and also to Bill Self and what Kansas did, and also to you know Kentucky to a certain extent. Kentucky was a a one and done type of era that kind of pr- goes after the Duke North Carolina championship teams before Duke and Carolina get into the one and done game, and so that era of college basketball into the 2000s was still incredibly successful. It was just less popular while being successful. And that has nothing to do with Coach K or to do with Roy Williams. That has to do with the expanding entertainment options that are available. You don't have to be a sports fan if you are growing up in the 2000s and 2010s like myself. There are so many entertainment options, many of which are better than sports because sports is the only one of those entertainment options where you can pay to be disappointed. You can pay to be hurt. If you pay for a movie or you pay for Netflix, you might not like the movie, but you're not going to leave paying to be hurt and paying for a result you did not want. You're not paying to lose. You can pay in sports to lose and pay a lot of emotional investment and dollars to lose a lot. And it's kind of funny how people will go that route. I love being a loser, actually. In sports, I love being a loser. And it's interesting because in the world of entertainment options, only the NFL is the sport that sees ratings boom in this post-entertainment era because football sells to everyone. Basketball ratings decline, baseball ratings decline, college basketball ratings decline, college football ratings decline to a point where the national championship last year in college football only did like 15 million viewers. And I know that sounds like a lot. Comparatively, Young Sheldon gets about 8 million viewers on a Monday night. So the national championship, the biggest thing college basketball can sell, can barely topple the Young Sheldon championship or Young Sheldon season finale because usually season finales double their normal ratings. They can barely compete with that, and I'm not going to be the one. Who, I've never watched the show, but I ain't going to be the one to say Young Sheldon is the pinnacle of of entertainment. I'm not going to argue that that's the pinnacle of entertainment options that are available in this world where some of the greatest books ever are being written, some of the great TV shows of all time, entertainment, TV movies is competing all over the place for your attention, streaming services abound. There are so many different entertainment options as well as like live entertainment options. The stand-up comedy scene has exploded, live music, all kinds of entertainment options to compete with sports that were not there in the past. And I've experienced this as well because I realize sports don't have to be the end-all be-all. I can try different things as well. That has nothing to do with Coach K and with Roy Williams. What those two have to do is they represent a time where basketball was more national, the same way Tiger Woods represents a time that golf was more national. Golf was never going to be the NFL. They didn't have the momentum to carry that. You know, college basketball was never going to be greater than what the NFL is now, but there was a time when college basketball was doing significantly higher ratings than the NFL and the NBA. MLB, you know, they kind of both decline at the same time, but that period in the 90s and 2000s when college basketball had a national attention and were making NCAA video games, and the NCAA, which is listed as a nonprofit organization, goes from making roughly $100 million a year to making over a billion dollars per year 
on their television contracts for March Madness. When you're seeing nine to ten times increases in March Madness TV contracts because of the decline of cable television and the demand for college basketball, Coach K, and when the players are incredibly disposable and they interchange every four years, or sometimes go one and done, or in the case of the best of the best, skipped college during this time, you know, Kevin Garnett skips college, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, the list on down, you see that the sport put the coaches as the forefront. And now it's not even the coaches anymore. Other than Coach K, now a lot of it is just the colors of the jerseys and regional pride. Because college basketball, like college football, is an incredibly regional sport. College football is just less so because it's football. And football just commands that national audience because you get a lot of the NFL holdovers or the NFL crack addicts, as I like to call it. I am very much one of these people, too. You get the holdovers who also get really into Saturday college football when it matters and can get attached to the coaches and get attached to players who are going to be in the NFL one day. And so you get the holdover people in college football from the NFL in a way you don't get with the NBA in college basketball. You get some of it, but the NBA, even to that point, has a significantly smaller rating than the NFL. In fact, now it's like four times a difference in such a way that the NBA gave up Thursdays as their main NBA on TNT night and went to Tuesdays during the NFL season. And as basketball ratings dip, and as all these others, and college basketball as well, you see the sport fighting off change as well. And this is a more recent development in the last 10 years in college basketball. Players are getting a little bit of power. It's progress. Like I said before, hashtag F the NCAA and hashtag don't let the NCAA off the hook. Name, image, and likeness and the transfer portal are great steps for granting players power and autonomy in the situations because the coaches had so much power and they still have so much power over the future of the kid. But as if the kid is given a chance to exit, it opens their options so that if they fall into a bad situation, they don't have to fight or freeze or quit basketball altogether. They can just jump to another place. If their situation changes, good that they have an option to skip. And the chance to make money is a step in the right direction. Name, image, and likeness helps a little bit. But the next step is to fight for players to unionize and for players to get paid by the schools that they play for. And that, you know, defeats the purpose of amateurism. And I attest, shamateurism, goodbye to it. Make them employees of the school and students. It's not like both of those things can't be true at the same time. If a student gets hired by the school to do a school job, they are students and part-time employees. Make them students and employees based on what the market dictates those players are worth, which according to Drexel University is roughly about a million dollars across four to five years per college basketball or per college football player. Just by being good enough to be there, by fielding a team, they are worth at major D1 college football programs a million dollars. I'm sure that number is significantly less in basketball, but the top-end talent can still get millions of dollars, and the people in the middle class can still get 
thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. As we see, you know, from the FBI wiretap sham investigation that, you know, DeAndre Ayton's going for $100,000 and Brian Bowen's going for $100,000. Slightly less, but still a pretty good market for top-end four-star and five-star players. And so this is where you see a step in the right direction for the universities and for these programs, which is you see players getting power. And we talked about this last year, how Lon Kruger drops out. Uh, Roy Williams drops out. Coach K drops out. Instead of evolving, we're going to walk away. Coach Calipari is, you know, kind of in a dark period right now for the Kentucky program with, you know, death involved. I know that has nothing to do with Coach Calipari and, and the program, but just a, a really awful death of Terrence Clark and the program missing the tournament and this year getting bounced by St. Peter's and a really dark period in that program right now and Texas Tech's making national championships and Houston becoming a powerhouse and Gonzaga becoming a powerhouse and one-and-done players going to Oklahoma State and USC and Memphis. You're seeing a change in college basketball to a place that's unrecognizable to someone who is searching for nostalgia in the college basketball that they grew to love. Similar to the people who are not going to find the same feeling in golf for that they felt if they got into golf during Tiger Woods and jumped off of golf when Tiger Woods became a national pariah in 2009. You're not going to find those people again with the sport that you have now, but you know where you can find those people? In nostalgia of Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and Villanova. And this is where the conversation comes up about what is for the good of the sport. I mean, I've heard people already talk about for this Duke, Carolina, this is really good for the sport that Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and Villanova. And I would argue it's good for the sport the same way ice cream is good for the sport. Short term, feels really good. It's going to give you a quick burst of energy. Long term, not conducive to the success of the sport because nostalgia is fleeting. You can't keep up nostalgia forever. As much as people try, change is inevitable. And we're seeing it. Coach K is retiring. Roy Williams has retired. He's, you know, getting memed on the sidelines in the stands of these crowds. Jay Wright isn't retired yet, but Jay Wright's in his 60s now, and he's always connected to NBA jobs. And Jay Wright represents a new period of college basketball. He doesn't even rep- represent the old guard period of college basketball. Even Bill Self is now headed towards 60, and he doesn't even represent the old guard that we're talking about here. He even represents to a certain extent, a new guard of college basketball. It's just the sport aging out. And this is a natural phenomenon, is that you're not going to be able to keep the same fervor that there was back in 2000 and 1990, or 1992 is a good year because that was the Fab Five. You're not going to be able to keep the same amount of fervor when there are just less sports fans than ever before and more entertainment sports options than there have ever been before. It's just not possible. You're competing for a smaller pie in terms of dollar figures. I mean, the dollar figures have gone up, but in terms of people, you're competing for a smaller piece of the pie with more and more sports. And this is something that was always unsustainable about the franchise valuations of basketball teams and MLB teams and football teams and hockey teams to a certain extent. It's not going to be sustainable forever. 
as long as there's a demand for it with millions upon millions of sports fans, yes, there's going to be opportunities. It just might not be you who's capturing the opportunity because you're competing with more and more entities than there's ever been before. Not only that, but you're also competing with more and more entertainment options than ever before. So if people don't want to be sports fans, there are more options for that than there were back in the 1990s and 2000s. And so that was something that was just inevitable. There was nothing college basketball could do to prevent that. For some reason, the NFL is the one exception, and there are all kinds of scientific debates about why the NFL is the one exception. Social science, I mean, they're not like actual science. I mean, brain science, you could argue, but there's all sorts of social science experiments trying to figure out why the NFL is the one exception as an entertainment form. And so we're seeing now a change in college basketball. A, a massive overhaul of the college basketball landscape at a time where there's massive change across America. And for one weekend, they can sell you nostalgia. They can sell you Duke Carolina. They can sell you Kansas and Villanova. And if I were marketing for the NCAA, I'd sell it as this is the end. The NCAA as you knew it is gone. What we're going to be now is minor league basketball. We are going to pay players. We are going to be a minor league system through universities that also give education at the highest levels of the sport. Do we really need an NCAA governing body? Not really. As I saw, Memphis might get a lack of institutional control penalty from the NCAA when Memphis is giving the NCAA the middle finger and saying, we don't care about your rules. And the NCAA is trying to punish Memphis by saying, you've gone too far. And, and Memphis is saying, you can't control this. The future is inevitable. You can't control this. And so the NCAA is looking up. I would advertise this as the NCAA you knew and loved. This is it. This is your weekend. Even if Duke makes it back from this point forward, it ain't going to be the same Duke team. It ain't even the same Duke team from 20 or 30 years ago. But it has Coach K, so you can sell it to people as this is the college basketball you knew and loved. And the sport also, I realize, moved back the three-point line this year. So even the rules are changing. And there's just nothing they can do to evolve with the times. Because even as great as this is, it's only going to draw so many people back in. You're not going to get 30 million people watching this game. I think they got like 16 million for the, the crazy Gonzaga-UCLA championship game last year. And the Baylor-Houston first Final Four game was the lowest rated Final Four game in the history of the Final Four. But that's inevitable, and that's okay. You're just a smaller organization than you were before. Adapt and change with the times. You might draw people in with new and exciting things. You also might lose the people who liked the sport the way it was. Change in the long run is going to require the NCAA to adapt and evolve. And if they change quicker, I argue, they'll be better able to sell whatever their product is now to the consumer. But it's really successful right now, and they've got to sell another TV contract before 2032. And so I think that college basketball is in a unique position that if I were being completely honest, I would advertise this as this is the end of an era in college basketball. This is everything that your dad and your grandpa talked about with college basketball. It's Duke. It's North Carolina. 
it's even though North Carolina is a Cinderella team now, but you can still hold on to the rivalry. You can sell that. This is the end of an era. Rare is it ever that you know exactly when the end of an era is happening. Yes, the era ended 10 years ago, but if you want to cling on to a bygone era in the sport, watch how crazy these Duke and Carolina fans are going to get over this Final Four game. And I saw people after North Carolina beat Duke saying, North Carolina, Duke can't say shit to us for 10 years. Duke gets the chance to wipe all of that away. All of it. The most I've seen college basketball care this year, or college basketball matter this year, was when North Carolina beat Duke in Coach K's final home game. That was the topic of conversation leading sports talk news for like three days. That is how you sell the sport. Because it's something that even casual sports fans remember. This is your last time ever to do it. Carolina ain't even a blue blood anymore. Carolina got bounced in the first round last year. And Carolina is a Cinderella team this year. With Hubert Davis as their head coach. Like, Carolina is what UCLA was last year. (laughs) UCLA almost made it back to the Final Four this year. UCLA ain't no blue blood anymore. UCLA ain't been that blue blood with a small exception in the 1990s and that three-year run in the 2000s. UCLA ain't been shit for 40 years. UCLA is not... And North Carolina is headed for that fate, too. There's North Carolina is headed for that fate. Unless they just spend exorbitant amounts of money more than the next closest program, which, by the way, North Carolina doesn't really have that. North Carolina is headed for that purgatory. Duke might just be headed for that purgatory. And even if Duke adapts and evolves, it's going to look a hell of a lot different than we remember those old school Duke teams. And they're not even going to have Coach K to sell you from the bygone era of college basketball. 30 years of history. One last dance this Saturday. Did I do a good job selling you guys on it? Garoppolo drops back to throw. You're gonna lose the game. The seasons come and seasons go. The Niners need a change. If you don't throw check downs, you're gonna take a sack. Jimmy G is warming up. Yeah, he's your quarterback. No, don't throw it. Interceptions drive us all insane. Phones are calling. Ron Rivera wants to make a trade. If a rookie QB isn't in your plans, just call San Francisco up. They got your quarterback. They say he's smart, 
and he wins games. That don't mean a thing. If since week one, Trey Lance had played, the 49ers would have had a ring. If your team's rebuilding, talent's what you lack. Trade two picks for Jimmy G. Now he's your quarterback. All right, so there are two NFL stories that I want to touch on here. The first one is our continuing chase of Jimmy Garoppolo and figuring out where Jimmy Garoppolo is going to go, which when we made the theme song that if you're listening on the podcast you just heard, and if you're listening on YouTube, check out the podcast so that you can hear the song that we made, the parody song to the Weatherman song from Groundhog Day to Jimmy Garoppolo that we made. When we made the original Jimmy Garoppolo soundtrack, I assumed I'd only get to use it like three or four times when I spent four hours making a parody song for Jimmy Garoppolo. We've gotten to use it like 10 times now because the 49ers just will not move off of Jimmy Garoppolo. And I will not consider the reality that the 49ers are actually going to play Jimmy Garoppolo next season over Trey Lance. The 49ers just have no takers for Jimmy Garoppolo because Jimmy Garoppolo is one, expensive, and two, quietly coming off of major surgery this offseason that's going to keep him out of training programs until, like, OTAs in July. So Jimmy Garoppolo's just in purgatory right now, which is the perfect end of the Jimmy Garoppolo era in San Francisco, which can only be defined as quarterback purgatory. You don't know whether you're trying to move on from this quarterback or whether you keep this quarterback you could do a whole lot worse it might take you years to find an alternative the 49ers traded all their first round picks to get Trey Lance in the first place and that was their way of bridging the gap between Garoppolo they didn't want to stay in quarterback purgatory a year longer than they had to because they chose to keep playing him last year but now they're stuck in purgatory for an entire offseason because the 49ers simply do not have anyone they can give Jimmy Garoppolo to. And it's the most amazing thing in the world because Jimmy Garoppolo is essentially going to be a $26 million backup for the 49ers. And they can actually do this. Like the 49ers are in a weird place where they have, as I've talked about before, like eight or nine all pro caliber players and they are the best drafting team since like the legion of boom in 2010 to 2013 in terms of like hitting on draft picks year after year like it's the type of drafting run for the 49ers that gets john lynch and kyle shanahan hall of fame considerations as long as they do like nothing the rest of their career they're at least going to get the hall of fame considerations the same way in 10 years, people are going to have the, is John Schneider a Hall of Famer? Is Pete Carroll a Hall of Famer debate? Like, just by four years of work in assembling that roster, the San Francisco 49ers have essentially set themselves up in a Legion of Boom type of team where if you take away the quarterback position you can still have success. Like, it's really, really hard to do that in the NFL. It's so much easier to win when you have either the quarterback position locked down or you have 
what the Rams had last year, which was two generational talents at wide receiver, at defensive tackle, and cornerback, and a Hall of Fame coach. All of, and by the way, a future Hall of Fame linebacker that they just threw in in the middle of the season and added to the mix Odell Beckham Jr. Like that perfect combination makes it easier to not have this the franchise quarterback. It's so much easier to just have an Aaron Rodgers, to just have a Patrick Mahomes, to have a Tom Brady, or to have a, a, a Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, insert guy there, whatever you want to do. And the 49ers could have gone all in with the core of the roster that they had now. They could have spent tons of money in free agency and gotten rid of Jimmy Garoppolo in February and spent all the money they have. But the reason the 49ers are prioritizing flexibility is because they plan to go all in with the players that they drafted. They want to give Nick Bosa a $30 million contract extension. They just gave Fred Warner an $18 million contract extension. They gave George Kittle a giant contract extension. Trent Williams is going to make $26 million next season. The 49ers are doing that all-in move, and they're all-in with the players they currently have on the roster. And because of that... They can afford to just keep Jimmy Garoppolo on the books because they weren't planning to spend that money on free agents this year. They weren't going to do the Dolphins thing where they go all in. And by the way, that could have guaranteed them one championship. They could have guaranteed themselves damn near one championship by going all in, by trading, you know, whatever picks you have left for a star player. I know they traded three first for Trey Lance. You could go all in with building a core of a team so good that even if Trey Lance is not Jimmy Garoppolo, which I you know, I th- don't know what Trey Lance is going to be, but the 49ers gave up enough compensation to make it such that they believe he's going to be a top 10 quarterback. Even if he's not that right away, you can still win a championship right now. You just need good breaks and slightly better than Jimmy Garoppolo, which... Slightly better than Jimmy Garoppolo was technically available this offseason. They just didn't have the picks because they went all in on Trey Lance last year. But they could have like absorbed the cap space and taken Matt Ryan's giant contract or, I don't know, you know, insert whatever person there. I know Russell Wilson wasn't going to come there. I know Aaron Rodgers wasn't going to come there. Deshaun Watson clearly was unavailable to them because they didn't have the draft capital. And so the 49ers were in this weird place where they don't need the money right now. And so that money's okay just sitting with Jimmy Garoppolo and waiting for someone to need a franchise quarterback. The problem is they've now overplayed their hand with Jimmy Garoppolo in such a way that I don't think they're going to get anything for Jimmy Garoppolo unless a team loses their quarterback to injury. It's going to be like the Sam Bradford situation, which is funny because when I was in high school, I made a joke about the Bradford line, which is essentially where Jimmy Garoppolo is at right now, which is if your quarterback is better than Sam Bradford, then you can win with them. If your quarterback is worse than Sam Bradford, you're not going to win with them. And Sam Bradford, this was like when he was on the Eagles at that time, and then he got traded to the Vikings for a first-round pick because Teddy Bridgewater was still injured. And so the Vikings were like, we're going to just go all in on Sam Bradford for a first-round pick, and that didn't work out the way they intended, and Sam Bradford kind of fell off after that, but still made $180 million without ever winning a playoff game. 
that's where Jimmy Garoppolo is right now, is the former Sam Bradford title of the Bradford line, which is 49ers can't, can win with Jimmy Garoppolo under the best of best of circumstances. And you know what's hilarious? The 49ers have basically gotten the best of best circumstances in two of the last three seasons. Now, obviously, 2018, catastrophic amount of injuries. 2020, catastrophic amount of injuries. 2019 and 2021, they got every good break in the world and almost got to the championship if their corner, what is it, Tart, doesn't drop that interception in the NFC Championship game that was right in his lap. They get to the Super Bowl twice. They get all of the good breaks twice. And they got the best possible circumstance with Jimmy Garoppolo. And what they need is just slightly better than Jimmy Garoppolo and be able to keep the core of the team intact, which, by the way, the 49ers knew the entire time. That's why they traded all those picks for Trey Lance, which uh, now we're finding out is the equivalent of what the Seahawks got for Russell Wilson and what Deshaun Watson gets traded for. Like, they gave up that equivalent to get Trey Lance. And them getting Trey Lance is going to be the thing that puts them over the edge. Either they win with him on the rookie contract or they do not, but they're going to build something sustainable, and that's why they didn't need to trade Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, unfortunately for them, now they're not going to get anything for Jimmy Garoppolo, but the difference between a second-round pick and uh, you know just cutting him outright and getting the cap space, it's not that much of a difference given where the 49ers are at right now. Sure, they'd like to get value for Jimmy Garoppolo, but it's kind of the same situation as Baker Mayfield, where you've already now overplayed your hand. Now you're just stuck with him. And now for the next few months, we get to play the song over and over again. Because I feel like every week we should come on the Memes of the Weekend podcast, or at least whenever we do Memes of the Weekend, because it's usually like every two weeks or so. Every time we come on Memes of the Weekend podcast from this point going forward, I'm just going to do a Garoppolo update. It's just, can we laugh at how the crazy this Garoppolo situation has gone? Because I'm the person who argues, if you trade three first-round picks for Trey Lance, you play him first week of the season. You play him in week three against the Packers. You make that transition. You don't keep going with Garoppolo because what is the point of trading all that for him? Don't you want to find out if he's actually that good? Because you know what? Talent is the thing that's going to make a difference in Trey Lance's development. The 49ers seem to be running a pretty good program there. Talent is going to be the thing that supersedes for Trey Lance. And talent's going to be the thing that supersedes for Lawrence and Zach Wilson and any of these quarterbacks at the top of the draft. The same way talent superseded for Josh Allen in a good environment and the same way talent superseded for Lamar Jackson in a good environment. Talent will supersede the situation in this spot is that everyone point. I mean, I say this all the time and it's getting it to be a bit of a used record, but everyone says, look at the chiefs. They transitioned from Alex Smith to Patrick Mahomes and Mahomes sat the entire season because that year, Alex Smith, I believe started the year eight. No went 11 and five and then lost in the wildcard game to Marcus Mariota. I'm like, imagine how good they would have been if they had started Mahomes from the beginning. We'll never know 
it just seems really clear to me that Patrick Mahomes in that one year sitting on the bench didn't go from he's not going to succeed to he's now the greatest quarterback to ever pick up a football. And I think Trey Lance is in that same boat. Sitting a season is not going to make Trey Lance significantly better. I hope the team's putting the resources to have him succeed, like building an offense around his strengths. I know in the preseason there was a lot of uh, RPOs and read options in the offense. I hope they're using those with Trey Lance because that seems to be the thing that really helps Trey Lance, although none of us have seen Trey Lance play football because Trey Lance hasn't played in the NF or hasn't played football since 2019 apart from two preseason games and one meaningless North Dakota State 2020 game during the COVID pandemic. He hasn't played football in damn near three years by the time we get to 2022. So yeah, none of us know, but we're assuming talent will supersede in this situation. And I know this became a Trey Lance, Jimmy Garoppolo show again, and damn it if we haven't been doing this show for like six months to a year now. Like, very clearly, this is about getting the quarterback, and Jimmy G's just going to sit there because it it behooves them to do it. They are going to get zero dead cap hit no matter what they do. They've set up the contract in such a way that there's no dead cap to move off Jimmy G. They can just get rid of him, cut him, trade him, whatever. It benefits them to hold on to him because they weren't going to spend the money anyways. They were going to wait to give it to all of those guys who need giant contract extensions. And they're just going to sit on Garoppolo. So now that they can get nothing for Garoppolo and they're waiting for, uh, I don't know, Carson Wentz to tear his knee or I, I don't wish ill upon Carson Wentz, but some team to lose their starting quarterback, the 49ers will be there with Garoppolo in exchange for a third or fourth round pick and $26 million. And the 49ers are probably just going to end up cutting him and Garoppolo will go to the Patriots because... That would be if he's going to be a backup somewhere. That would be the situation for him to be a backup. Is either go be a backup with the Patriots, go start with I don't know Pittsburgh. They seem to be a well-run organization. That seems kind of to be the purgatory that Garoppolo finds himself in, which is his contract is keeping him tied to the 49ers, and it behooves Garoppolo to kind of just wait it out, and it behooves the 49ers because the only thing they're losing is cap space in the short term, but they can move Garoppolo tomorrow or a week from now, or a month from now, or in training camp, and it's still the same cap hit. So they don't need the cap space until next year, and they don't really have anything else to do right now, so let's just hang on to Garoppolo for as long as we can. So check back next week for our weekly Garoppolo update here on the Memes of the Weekend podcast. It's kind of like how we did Kirk Cousins' Purgatory during the season or make fun of the ACC and Pac-12. Check back here every week where we can laugh at the progression of the Jimmy Garoppolo situation in San Francisco because it's really, really stupid. All of it is really, really stupid from every party involved because Jimmy Garoppolo is the Sam Bradford line. I'm not even going to change the name to the Garoppolo line like we changed Philip Rivers' purgatory to Kirk Cousins' purgatory. Jimmy Garoppolo is the Sam Bradford line, and they're just going to sit on him until someone needs a starting quarterback, and it's really, really hilarious that Jimmy Garoppolo finds himself in that situation. It'd be even more hilarious if they start him over Trey Lance, because that would just be the 49ers doing mismanagement of resources, but for the time being, we can still laugh at Jimmy Garoppolo still being stuck 
in quarterback purgatory unlike any quarterback purgatory we have ever seen before other than maybe Sam Bradford and maybe that last year of Andy Dalton with the Bengals spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be part of it New York New York these vagabond shoes are longing to stray right through the very heart of it all righty y'all it's time to laugh at the jets it's time to laugh at the jets so remember like a month ago when the washington racial slurs were trying to figure out who their next quarterback was going to be and i don't know who the gm is now for washington I just know Ron Rivera is like kind of the head honcho guy who kind of like represents the organization and we are making progress because we're one of the three organizations that will hire a non-white head coach, even though we've got a whole bunch of racist and sexist and workplace misconduct issues going on. We're going to be the team of Ron Rivera and changing times. So basically, Washington and Ron Rivera were trying to find a quarterback and they basically just made a list of every quarterback in the NFL and tried to go acquire them like they basically just made a list and then said okay Patrick Mahomes they called the Kansas City Chiefs and asked them if there would be anything they would trade for Patrick Mahomes the Chiefs obviously said no they then called the Buffalo Bills and said is there anything we can get for Josh Allen Nope, nothing you can do. I assume they tried Lamar Jackson. I assume they tried Deshaun Watson. Although, who if they had traded for Deshaun Watson? Oh my lord, that would have been a story. That would have been a story. Um, They probably tried with Kyler Murray. They're probably still trying with Kyler Murray. They probably tried with Justin Herbert. I assume they tried everyone. The fact that we know about the Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes ones are pretty incredible. Like, we know. There's credible reporting. They couldn't even hide their trail on we tried to call about Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. And I like to imagine that someone in the Kansas City organization and someone in the Buffalo organization was hitting up Adam Schefter like, "Eh, can you believe these dumbasses? They tried to trade for Patrick Mahomes and tried to trade for Josh Allen and Adam Schefter, whoever the reporter was, is like, LOL, let's just post this because it's really funny that they tried to trade for those guys. I appreciate that they made the call, though. Like, they didn't just assume that those guys were off the table. They at least made the call and said, what can we do to acquire these players? So, anyways, they then tried to trade for Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson was uh, no-trade-clausing them through and through. He was not going to go represent that organization at this time. So, they offered the biggest deal. They offered three first-round picks 
for Russell Wilson and Seattle said, uh, I'm sorry, Russell Wilson said no. Russell Wilson went to Denver for less, which I presume means that Russell Wilson vetoed a trade to Washington and then went to Denver for less than what Washington was offering. So presumably Russell Wilson declined a no trade clause there. And then they just kept going down the list to, you know, Derek Carr, Kirk Cousins, and then they got to Carson Wentz and they said, ah, whatever, we can get Carson Wentz. We'll take all of his money and we'll give you two third round picks for Carson Wentz in order for us to take all of his money, which by the way, not that bad of a deal, especially since the Colts gave up one third for Matt Ryan turned out okay for both sides but Washington's not better or worse with Carson Wentz Carson Wentz is better than Taylor Heineke Carson Wentz is not so much better than Taylor Heineke that Washington is now a guaranteed playoff contender just by upgrading from Taylor Heineke to Carson Wentz what this has to do with the Jets is that the Jets are in the same camp as Washington when it comes to finding a wide receiver. And by the way, the Jets didn't even have, like the Jets were mismanaged for 20 years, but the Jets didn't even have to have like workplace misconduct allegations, a racist team name, an owner that is really, really problematic and may or may not have sexual assault charges that he settled out of court in 2009, like allegedly. The Jets just had to be incompetent. The Jets just had to be poorly run. They had to have an owner who be- became, I believe if I remember correctly, he was a he was the representative to Ireland for the Trump administration, Woody Johnson, who then turned the team over to his son, who proceeded to give Adam Gase all of the power in the organization, only for that to backfire spectacularly on the Jets, and then for his dad to come back, reassume power in the team, and the Jets look up and now they have the longest playoff drought by five years of any NFL team five years the Jets beat any other franchise for longest playoff drought in the NFL they are standing at 11 years running without making the playoffs and the Jets have obviously Robert Sala they have Mike LaFleur who if Mike McDaniel's getting that job with the Dolphins right now, like I feel like Mike LeFleur got the raw end of the deal on that. Like he was the offensive coordinator for so many years with the 49ers. He took the OC job with the Jets so he could call plays with Zach Wilson and essentially be the offensive guru while Robert Sala is the defensive guru. Like, that dude got the raw end of the deal on that one, that he's now the offensive coordinator for the Jets, while Mike McDaniel spends, like, one year as the running game coordinator and ends up getting the head coaching job with the Dolphins, who traded for Tyreek Hill last week. By the way, I apologize that we didn't do the Tyreek Hill, uh, you know, problematic issues and uh, you know, obviously he's had a bunch of cases of beating his girlfriend and hitting his child and the leaked tape that I forgot about back in 2019. We'll do that full episode later on in the week. I just last week needed to do quick content. I was dealing with a lot on Wednesday last week, just needed a quick 10 minute intro on Tyree Kill. And we only mentioned for 20 seconds the the really messed up stuff that Tyree Kill has in his past that partially has gotten some accountability but hasn't gotten the measure of accountability we'd like to expect uh, in a situation like what we're talking about with Tyreek Hill but side note there we'll get to that later in the week I forgot to mention that on Friday's episode so good place to circle back now the Jets 
which I wanted to laugh at before having to make the serious tangent right there. The Jets are doing the same thing Washington did, which is basically the Jets are looking at the situation at the wide receiver position for them, which right now is a whole lot of Elijah Moore and Corey Davis, which is one of the worst receiving cores in the NFL. Just bar none, they have no wide receiver one on that team. It's not great. And the Jets are looking up and saying, who are the wide receivers we can acquire? And so they like made a list of wide receivers at this point. They're like, okay, so let's start with Devontae Adams. We know he's available. We know he's one of the best receivers in the NFL. We've got cap space. Let's try and trade for Devontae Adams. Well, Devontae Adams goes to the Raiders. Okay, check that off the list. We've also got two first-round picks, by the way, so we can always draft a wide receiver in the draft, but let's see if we can just trade those picks for guaranteed guys now who we can pay $30 million because who the hell wants to go play for the Jets? So check Devontae Adams. Nope. Tyreek Hill. We're going to get in the Tyreek Hill game. He's going to choose the Dolphins. Okay, darn. No Tyreek Hill. Uh, next up on the list, we have DeAndre Hopkins. Is DeAndre Hopkins available? No? Okay, check that off the list. Uh, next up on the list, we have Debo Samuel. Can we get Debo Samuel? Because this is the report that came out on Sunday from, I believe, Ian Rappaport, which is the Jets are still looking to acquire a top-end wide receiver, and they have A.J. Brown... Uh, they have AJ, sorry, AJ Brown, Debo Samuel, and DK Metcalf on their list of acquirable wide receivers, which the DK Metcalf one, if the Seahawks were doing right by the situation, they, they would be taking calls on DK Metcalf. Like, you don't have to trade DK Metcalf, but if someone's going to give you an offer you can't refuse, like a top 10 pick in this year's draft, which the Jets have two of you'd be behooved to listen to them, especially if you're the Seahawks and you can get your own first round pick back, which would be brutal for them if they gave up two firsts to get Jamal Adams and then have to trade DK Metcalf back to the Jets in exchange for the draft pick that they threw away last time. But anyways, so the Jets are basically making a list at this point saying, okay, we couldn't get Devontae Adams, we couldn't get Tyree Kill, we couldn't get DeAndre Hopkins, let's try A.J. Brown, let's try D.K. Metcalf, let's try Debo Samuel, let's just make a list of all the top wide receivers in the league and see if we can trade for any of them. And you know who the Jets are going to end up with? Jarvis Landry. Just like Washington ended up with Carson Wentz, they're going to try their best, and they're going to end up with Jarvis Landry. Why? Because the NFL is unfair. You're the Jets. People know you're the Jets. People know you're Washington at this point. You're doing the best you can, and the best you can is piss-poor mediocre. Why? Because you are a shit organization. You have poor management. Your leader, a.k.a. your owner, is a white guy who behaves like a white guy a little too much, and it makes it uncomfy for everyone to come into work. And that's why you, the Jets, have the reputation of being the Jets, which is just a really poorly run organization, and you, Washington, have the reputation for being Washington, which is a really toxic place to come into work every day and piss poor mediocre across 20 years at football. So you know what, the Jets, you tried your best. You did the best you could under the circumstances. I, I think Joe Douglas is the general manager of the Jets. It's going to take a concerted plan to be able to turn this thing around for the Jets. I don't know if the Zach Wilson thing is going to work out or not. 
genuinely have no idea if the Zach Wilson thing is going to work out or not. But the concerted effort to build around Zach Wilson is something that's going to turn your organization around and Jarvis Landry is going to help catch you to slightly mediocre. It's better than no Jarvis Landry unless you value the cap space in that situation. Although I saw Jarvis Landry's asking for like 20 million a year, which probably not going to happen, but you're in the ballpark. It'd be like getting Carson Wentz for 28 million a year. One season stopgap might help, you know, Terry McLaurin have the best quarterback he's ever had, which is the funny thing about this for the Jets, right? Is like the Jets are so bad that, Jarvis Landry is a punchline of a wide receiver that the Jets are going to end up with given they tried to trade for Tyreek Hill, they tried to trade for Devontae Adams, they tried to trade for DeAndre Hopkins, they want to trade for A.J. Brown, they want to trade for D.K. Metcalf, they want to trade for uh, Debo Samuel, they want to throw exorbitant amounts of money and draft picks at wide receivers that probably aren't worth the exorbitant amount of money and draft picks they're throwing at them in a salary cap sport. And they're just saying no. And that is how you know you are playing minor league football and how you know that you are a perpetually mediocre franchise. Looking at you, Lions. Looking at you, New York Giants. Looking at you, normally Denver Broncos, except Russell Wilson decided he wanted to try and turn you around and you still might finish fourth in the AFC West. I'm looking at you, Washington football team. And I'm looking at you, New York Jets. And Jacksonville Jaguars, don't forget about you. You're there too. Houston Texans, five-year rebuild. You're in that camp too. You can throw as much money as you want at someone, and you couldn't pay them to come play for your shitty organization. The Jets are trying with all these wide receivers. What are they going to end up with? The Carson Wentz of, of wide receivers, which is Jarvis Landry. Book it here. Like, we'll follow up on this in two weeks. They're going to end up with Jarvis Landry. Like, they paid all that money for Corey Davis after he had a thousand yard season with the Titans. Didn't work out. Drafted Elijah Moore. Everyone was telling me how sneaky he was of a fantasy pick this year. Didn't work out. They try. They try. They're just the Jets, man. They're going to pay. They're going to throw a bunch of money at Jarvis Landry. Why? Because Jarvis Landry can't say no to the Jets. Jarvis Landry ain't got a whole lot of options to make $16 million a year besides going to play for the New York Jets. And the reason is Jarvis Landry ain't going to be worth $16 million a year, but that's what the Jets are going to pay him. All right, to wrap up this week's memes of the weekend, I wanted to play a, a quick YouTube clip that we uploaded on Saturday that ended up being quite popular, actually. So I think that this was a really, really interesting trade idea that came to my mind as I was taking a shower on Saturday, and I wanted to share it with the world. I know it's the middle of the NBA playoff push, and I know the trade deadline has passed, and I'm sometimes skeptical to make these moves because it convinces people that the thing the, the thing that sports media has done a really good job of over the past five years is convincing people that the transaction can be just as important as the game themselves, especially in the NBA. Casual fans care way more about the transaction than they do about the actual games. And by the way, the numbers reflect this. It's why we do like multiple days on NBA free agency while we rarely do multiple days in the regular season about regular season basketball. And so even I am susceptible to this is that in the middle of the NBA playoff push talking about a possible transaction. But this one was just too good to pass up on. 
And I want to put it out here now so that if and when it happens this summer, I can stake my name to I was right on Nikola Jokic. Nikola Jokic can hit free agency after next NBA season. And the state of the Denver Nuggets kind of sets up in a way where the Nuggets are kind of in a bad position to convince Jokic to stay around. Jokic is looking at a situation where Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., two very good players, but also not really NBA All-Stars, those two players are now making a combined $76 million. Michael Porter Jr.'s contract is going to be $40 million per season. And Michael Porter Jr. is a type of player who, yes, can be good down the road, but is a player that you use to acquire a Bradley Beal or a player that you use to acquire an all-star caliber player to go along with Jokic. Nikola Jokic might win his second consecutive MVP this year in 2022. And Nikola Jokic is the type of NBA player where under the best of circumstances, he can win an NBA championship as the best player on his team. And the Denver Nuggets would not qualify as the best of circumstances, not just because they have the lowest ratings of any fan base in the NBA, but roster construction-wise, they've put all their chips in on two players, Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray, who make so much money to not be on the floor. Both of them have battled injuries, Jamal Murray tearing his ACL last season, Michael Porter Jr. missing all of this season with a back injury. And as great as Mike Malone is and as great as the Denver Nuggets have been over the last three years, Jokic kind of represents a team that is not anywhere close to the best of circumstances. But if Jokic wants to hit free agency and become his generation's version of Kevin Durant or LeBron James flexing his might as the second best player of his generation in his prime and join another team, there is one perfect destination for matchup fit, creating a super team, and a perfect duo of teammates that can make it such that Nikola Jokic is the best player on a championship team, and that team has all the assets in the world to make this trade happen. I am talking about none other than the Phoenix Suns, the Phoenix Suns number one seed in the Western Conference right now. Those Phoenix Suns can trade for Nikola Jokic at the end of this season and build an NBA super team, the likes of which we have not seen since the Golden State Warriors of 2017 to 2019. So here's the basic format of the situation for Phoenix. Phoenix is the closest thing we have to a 1A, 1B superstar tandem. Devin Booker and Chris Paul. Chris Paul, obviously about 10 years to 10 to 15 years older than Devin Booker but still almost equally as valuable to the Phoenix Suns as Devin Booker. Last year, they went to the NBA championship in what most people consider to be a bit of a fluke because they played the Lakers while injured and they played the Clippers without Kawhi in the conference finals. And they beat Denver with no Jamal Murray and minimal contributions from Michael Porter Jr. in the second round of the playoffs. But Phoenix came back this year with basically the exact same team, and after being two games away from winning the NBA Finals, have run away with the best record in not just the Western Conference, but in all of the NBA. And so Phoenix might get back to the Finals, might not get back to the Finals, but if they built a trio of Jokic, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker, that team would be absolutely 
unbeatable because yes, Chris Paul is a dominant ball handler, but you can build an offense around Jokic that makes Devin Booker the third offensive weapon, a player who I'd argue if he was the number one weapon on the Suns, he would be averaging 35 points per game because Devin Booker is one of the most skilled off-ball offensive players we have in the NBA today. And that pairing with Jokic, who becomes the point center of the entire offense, would be a perfect trade that I think would make the Phoenix Suns unbeatable by anyone other than the Milwaukee Bucks. But here's how they make the trade happen. So Nikola Jokic is making $32 million per season. And looking at the Phoenix Suns roster, they don't have anyone other than Devin Booker and Chris Paul making that kind of money. What they do have as the centerpiece of the trade is former number one overall pick, DeAndre Ayton, who's seeking a max from the Phoenix Suns and is currently in a contract dispute because he was forced to play out an extra season this year from the quote-unquote notoriously cheap Robert Sarver, who may or may not be kicked out as owner of his team because of a sexual harassment and work just toxic workplace situation. Robert Sarver doesn't want to give DeAndre Ayton a max contract, but if this were to become a trade situation, the Denver Nuggets would very much want DeAndre Ayton as a centerpiece, and the Suns would be happy to send Ayton as the current centerpiece over to Denver. And the way that would work is you sign Ayton to a max contract if you're Phoenix, and then immediately trade him to Denver. And the max contract between him and Jokic is identical. So by signing DeAndre Ayton to a max and immediately trading him to the Denver Nuggets, you have a perfect salary matching situation to make this trade happen. Now the Suns just need to compensate the Denver Nuggets for Nikola Jokic, and they can put together maybe the best package of any team in the NBA. Because if you're thinking about other Jokic suitors, it's Miami. Bam Adebayo is a pretty good piece. I'd argue him and Aiton are relatively close. Adebayo is a better piece, but still relatively close there. And no draft picks to deal from in the future. What Phoenix has is a combination of young players and an unlimited amount of draft picks to deal from. Phoenix has gotten so good so recently that they haven't had a chance to go all in and spend on their draft picks. They only had to give up one this year for Chris Paul. Their first round pick is going to go to Oklahoma City. After that, Phoenix has all of their draft picks through 2029 available to trade. So start off the trade. Phoenix is going to add their 2023 first round pick, their 2025 first round, or sorry, they're going to add their 2024 first round pick because you can't trade in back-to-back years, 2024, 2026, and 2028. And they're going to put in a right to swap picks in 2023, 2025, and 2000. And 27. So that's six draft picks in the control of the Denver Nuggets. DeAndre Ayton goes over there, and Phoenix can send Cam Johnson as a side piece of the trade, but a young player on a rookie contract that can be used as a building block for whatever Denver wants to build. So Denver's now looking at a team that has a core of Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., DeAndre Ayton, and Cam Johnson, as well as whatever else they can put around them with all those draft picks that could be used to trade for a star player once another star player comes available. Maybe Donovan Mitchell, maybe a Jimmy Butler, whatever they figure out down the road, they have the draft picks to use at their disposal. Suns get an immediate super team that they go all in for, and Jokic is that player that you go all in for 
if you're the Phoenix Suns. So let me know what you think about that in the comments. I think this would be a landscape altering trade that is incredibly reasonable to get done this offseason. Jokic to the Phoenix Suns, book it here on the Take It Easy podcast. Harry Douglas, Arthur Blank, Dante Fowler, Michael Vick, Devin Hester Hayden, Hurston Caleb McGarry. Tack McKinley, Deion Sanders, Michael Turner, Grady Jarrett, Austin Hooper, Tevin Coleman, Tony Gonzalez. Warwick Dunn, Brent Grimes, Kyle Pitts, Des Trefont, Leftwich, Julio, Mascot Has Creepy Eyes, Darren Holland, KZ, Maddie won an MVP, AJ Terrell, Duron Harmon, Russell Gage, Vic Beasley, we're the Atlanta Falcons. We're always flying and we keep on trying. We're the Atlanta Falcons. We keep blowing leads, but we try to fight it. Steven Jackson, Jalen Mayfield, Dan Quinn, and Shanahan, Jeff, George, Jake, Matthews, Fabian, Moreau. Mike Davis, Ito Smith, Devonta Freeman's Pro Bowl, Jock Keys, Rogers, Asante, Samuel, Young Way, Dean Pease, Mike Smith had a winning team, Henry Crockett, Petrino, Calvin Ridley, Jaden Graham, Deion Jones, Tajay Sharp, Daryl is a running back, Chris Lindstrom, D'Angelo Hall, some dude names a Keyes. We're the Atlanta Falcons, we're always flying and we keep on trying, we're the Atlanta Falcons. We keep blowing leads, but we try and fight it. Dirty Bird, bring it back. Roddy White and Alex Mack, Alford, Luke McCown, Super Bowl prostitutes, Justin Hardy, Matt Shaw, Atlanta Braves, baseball beat with an onside kick. Dirt Cutter's an idiot. Corey Peters, Richie Grant, Chris Chandler, Paul Warlow, Lee Smith, Jay Brown, Super Bowl's a no-go, Sanu Brooks, Reed, Mike Pinnell, Matt Hennessy, Dwight Freeney, Toy Lolo, don't score that ball, Todd Gurley. We're the Atlanta Falcons, we're always flying and we keep on trying, we're the Atlanta Falcons, we keep blowing leads and we try to fight it.